0: where three sisters recreate the post-movie theater experience. I'm Frankie. I'm Jessie. And this is Annie. Today we're talking about Little Women, the 2019 movie directed by Greta Gerwig. Little Women is based on the 1868 novel by Louisa May Alcott that follows the lives of the March sisters, Joe, Meg, Beth, and Amy, in Concord, Massachusetts, during the American Civil War. I know that this is a favorite novel of both Annie and Jesse, so I think we're all really excited to talk about this movie today, right? Yeah, thanks for picking it, Frankie. <laughs> so to start, we, we all saw this movie in the theaters together, which is a wild concept. Um, in 2019, was it opening weekend? It was Boxing Day. It was the
1: night of the day after Christmas.
0: Yes, yes. I remember we had (laughs) some debates in the family over whether to see Little Women or Uncut Gems. And by debates, I mean I wanted to see Uncut Gems. (laughs) But I was really, really happy we ended up seeing Little Women instead because that was such an amazing experience to see it all together. When you say that you know that this is one of my
1: favorite books and one of Jesse's favorite books, are you insinuating that you don't really care for the book?
0: <laughs> Jesus. No, I like Little Women. It was just never one of my favorites the way it is for you two.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed with the book. I was obsessed growing up. I had a t-shirt from Orchard House. So I wasn't obsessed with the book the way that Annie was, but I did love Louisa May
2: Alcott. I loved the movie the 1994 movie i really liked watching the 1933 movie and the 1949 movie like i was more interested in the story and the different
1: adaptations
0: right this is this is what i'm saying it's like i like it but i was not that level of fandom
1: <laughs> i was a huge louisa may alcott <laughs> fangirl i have little women little men joe's boys Eight Cousins, Rose and Bloom, she, Lulu's <laughs> Library, Hospital Sketches. Like, I have all of the Louisa Alcott yes. books. And I love her. And I, she's an abolitionist. She's a feminist. She loves her sisters. She loves her family. She loves writing. Like, I would love to have dinner with Louisa Alcott.
0: One thing that well, I was reading um, that this was maybe Greta Gerwig's big passion project. She really wanted to make this film. And she talked about how she reread the book in her 30s. And that really inspired her to make the film that we see in 2019, right? Her version of it. And I think it's interesting because it is a story that you can revisit at different points in your life. You don't have to just be a little girl reading Little Women, right? Like, I feel like when we saw it in the theater and then when I've rewatched it since, maybe I'm getting even more out of it now than I did when I first read it 15 years ago. <gasps> Oh, for sure. I think most of those books that you read
2: as a child and that you internalize and become part of you, you, when you're reading them as a kid, you're only reading part of it. You're only able to see one aspect. And then when you revisit Mm -hmm. them as an adult, they become so much richer because you can pull so many things out of it that you never noticed before.
0: I mean, I think that comes across in this film through Gerwig's reinterpretation of Amy which we can talk about later, especially when I was younger. I mean, Joe was everything in in this book, Yes, yes. And then, of course, Beth, right? But those two other characters, Meg and Amy, Gerwig really gives them their moment here in a way that I feel like is like a maturing of the way the story is told on film.
1: That's actually my favorite part of the 2019 version of Little Women, is the Amy character, Mm -hmm. because when I was a kid reading the book... You know, I have these two really amazing older sisters and my mom, like everybody. I thought when I looked at you guys that you reminded me so much of Joe and of these other characters. And I really did not want to be like Amy, (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) because I was the youngest, I was like, I must be. We're all, I, I told myself we're all a little bit like Joe, but out of everyone, I have to be the Amy. And I always resented that. <laughs> and then watching this movie, I loved that Greta's
0: made me not ashamed to be like Amy now. I feel like we're really digging deep into Annie's youngest sister <laughs> psyche in this series. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I read that the scene where she gives the monologue in the art studio, to Laurie, was inspired by Meryl Streep. Really? Mm -hmm. Greta Gerwig said that Meryl Streep is, quote, obviously the queen of all things, but she's also just so clear and intelligent about texts and filmmaking. At a lunch, Meryl Streep said, quote, the thing you have to make the audience understand is that it's not just that women couldn't vote, which they couldn't. It's not just that they couldn't own property, which they couldn't is that they couldn't own anything when they were married. And Meryl Streep saying that inspired Greta Gerwig to include that monologue. That's one of my favorite scenes, yeah. I think it's magnificent to have that monologue from the point of view of Amy, because Joe is always, you know, the central sort of feminist, strong, independent character um, in Little Women. And then to not flip it, but to nuance that by having Amy also show that strength, right? And that uh, self-awareness. In many ways, The reason that Amy and Joe come into conflict all the time is because they're the most similar to each other. Yeah. The
2: way that they use economics and the politics of women's rights in this era and the way that women had to live and the way that women had to move within these systems. Amy being very clear and concise about that is great for the audience, but I think it also really puts her motivations in a less selfish light, whereas prior movie versions of the story would make it seem like she stole all these things from Joe. She stole Lori from Joe in the end. She stole the trip to Europe from Joe and that she was always super vain. There's not really a villain in the story, but I think if there was one, it would be her. But in Greta Gerwig's version, you finally understand her motivation, and it's because she's trying to take care of her family. And because she has these opportunities, she's going to take them and run with them and do the most that she can
1: with them. It's a more mature view of who Amy is as a character in relation Mm -hmm. to Joe, which is one of the cool things about this movie and relating back to reading books we loved as children, as adults, We can see things through a different lens and have Mm -hmm. a different level of maturity and experience that informs our understanding and what we take from that book. Rereading the book in her 30s saw Amy in a different light and understood how her character relates to Joe in a different way.
0: I think she also tried to do something similar with Meg, but I don't think it was successful. And I think a lot of that comes down to the acting. Florence Pugh is so good and so heartbreaking as Amy. Florence Pugh, well cast as Amy, but also when she's supposed to be like a little girl. Oh my
1: gosh. And then they actually put little girls around her and then it just points out that she's an adult woman. Just so silly. It was so creepy.
0: It's a very bizarre choice.
1: Very bizarre. I prefer that to switching
2: the the actor in the middle like they did in the 94 version. But I love that. Amy when she's doing her most cruel act of burning Joe's manuscript that she has her hair yeah. in those braids that they put her in when she's a kid like that that are like up on top of her head yeah. it's very youthful um and then she has these like ribbons with wires around her back that are supposed to look like wings and it's just like <laughs> <laughs> such a just juxtaposition of like this very angelic appearance, but then this very cruel, cruel behavior, which is mm-hmm. totally, totally exists in children, especially between sisters, right? Oh,
1: sure. absolutely.
2: Yeah. But when she's burning each page of the manuscript page by page, like I was like, this is so psycho. She is such a psychopath <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's, It's pretty,
1: it felt very intense. intense like yeah. I really felt her anger. And when Joe finds that Amy has burned her manuscript, somebody else in the room says, why didn't you burn one of her dresses? (laughs) And Amy says, because I know she doesn't care about her dresses and I wanted to hurt her. Yeah. And it's like Amy understands what will hurt Joe more than anything. And that's what she does. It's because she like understands Joe and she understands what's going on. And her purpose is to harm her and hurt her in this moment. I mean, it's the worst part. I hate that part. <laughs> I've always hated that part viscerally. Mm. You know, later, you see Joe burning her own papers, which is also a visual echo back to the same moment. Yeah. Like
2: Frankie said a minute ago... That Joe and Amy are, are so similar. And I had never seen that before mm-hmm. because Amy comes across as very feminine, very obsessed with beauty and her appearance, and Joe is not that way at all. But in the 2019 version, they're saying a lot of the same things about marriage and womanhood when they're adults, when they're children, they're talking about, you know, their their art and the need to express their genius and how they want to be the best in their fields, and then when Joe cuts her hair and sells it, and she's crying at night, Amy's the one who comforts her because she understands. Like Joe mm-hmm. does care about her appearance on some level, and Amy understands that. But in the '94 movie, it was Beth because Beth is so mm-hmm. non-judgmental. Um, but I think yeah. making it be Amy in this this version just really made the bond that they have so much clearer that any of that other conflict doesn't really seem to matter at the end of the day. But I think in previous versions, I never really got
1: that. That never really came through. Yeah, I love the relationship between Joe and Amy in this movie, especially at the end when they're both kind of grown up and they've been through all of these things. And Amy's now being treated like an adult by the people around her because she's married. And they're having that conversation about genius, and she and Joe finally are talking to each other about the same thing that clearly is always on their minds, this ambition that they share. Joe says, when did you become so wise? And Amy says, I always have been. You were just too busy noticing my faults. And then Meg says, of which there were
2: none, I'm sure, or something (laughs) like that.
1: It's just like trying to imagine Samantha Mathis as the adult version of Amy in 1994 having that conversation with Joe. Like, that's not the character that she is. Mm-mm. Amy's not made out to be someone where she can, like, joke around with her sisters. I, I particularly love that moment with the three sisters of between Meg, Joe, and Amy.
2: Yeah, I also love what they did with Meg where they really showed her struggle of living mm-hmm. in
1: a marriage where she's relatively poor. Like, that's an element in the book that's huge, where everyone's disappointed that she doesn't marry rich and that she marries the tutor and then immediately has twins that they can't really afford. Her story is all about choosing love instead of a prosperous and rich and wealthy match and then finding joy in her circumstance the way that Marmee did, right? And she's supposed to be mirroring the life path that her mother had chosen,
0: I like what Gerwig tried to do with Meg. I just felt like Emma Watson was pretty unremarkable in this movie. She didn't leave much of an impression. She's outshone by everybody else. I remember walking out of this movie feeling like, man, that's that was what Emma Watson had to give us. Like, I agree. I thought she was totally wrong for the role.
1: She wasn't originally supposed to be the actress. They had originally had Emma Stone signed on. Interesting. And then she dropped to film The Favourite.
0: Oh, good. Yeah. I. That's good. <laughs> but that leads to another issue, which is all of these non-American women playing, people, right? Non-American women playing quintessential American characters.
1: Yeah, this was something that really hit me when I was rewatching it. Mm-hmm. Was just thinking. Oh wow, Saoirse Ronan as Joe. She's Irish. Right. Emma Watson as Meg. She's British. Eliza Scanlon as Beth. She's Australian. Mm-hmm. Florence Pugh as Amy. She's British. Even John Brooks, the actor who plays John Brooks. Is British. <laughs> Professor Bear is supposed to be German. <laughs> and you have Louis Garrel who's one of the most famous like young French actors. Yes. She's just. What is going on? That, that casting, and that the I'm Americans are totally Timothy Chalamet, right. <laughs> like, Bob Odenkirk, <laughs> and Laura Dern and Meryl Streep, right? You have the the older
0: generation. Yeah. Can we talk about Bob Odenkirk though? I'm sorry, like that moment in the theater when he showed up. What what an iconic moment when he turns out to be the dad. <laughs>
2: That is so perfect. I love that Bob Odenkirk was the dad because the dad is so absent Mm. and he's not a central character in the book either, but I love that choosing Bob Odenkirk is kind of like a shorthand about who this father really is. Like we get some details. (laughs) He's never been great with money, that he's responsible for all of these troubles that his family has, but his children still love him very much. And I think that choosing Bob Odenkirk, who is known for playing these characters who are charlatans but very, very Mm -hmm. well-intentioned, that says so much about who the dad (laughs) is (laughs) without having to say very much at all. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, inspired casting.
0: It's also just very welcome because Andy Samberg's quote about Portrait of a Lady on Fire you know, this idea that you have all these women and then when the man enters the dynamic, it like changes for the worse. Bob Odenkirk enters the room and it's okay. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> I get this is fine. I'm okay with this.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's not like a hyper masculine, obtrusive character. None of the men are.
0: No, and between him and Laura Dern, I think it's just perfect casting two as the two parents who raised these four very strong women. I recently watched the David Lynch movie Wild at Heart for the
1: first time, <laughs> Okay, which is Laura Dern and Nicolas Cage Ooh. just on this like wild road trip. And they, they have this very intense like sexual dynamic that is most of the movie, which I did not know when I started watching it. And it's so funny then to see Laura Dern next to Bob Odenkirk because Laura Dern is just such a babe. And like, yes, <laughs> to have to know that she's like married to Bob Odenkirk. I, I laughed out loud. Yes. <laughs> I love what she did with
2: the adults in the story. Mm-hmm. She made them so multidimensional in ways that I had never considered before. Like she really pulled out. The different sides to Marmy as someone who is a mother and like wholeheartedly embraces that role, but also yeah. really struggles. And there's that quote that she pulled directly from the book about how Marmy confides to Joe that she's angry nearly every day of her life. And that just really hit me in the heart. Like the struggle is what makes Marmy Marmy. It's not that Marmy is perfect. So.
0: Speaking more about the casting, Sersha Ronan was the first to be cast, and in fact she cast herself, apparently. Greta Gerwig says that when she started planning to make this film, Sersha came to her and said, "I will be playing Joe." And the second person to be cast was Timothy Chalamet. And I have here an article from the Hollywood Reporter where they where Gerwig talks about casting Timothy Chalamet. She says that She thought that his androgynous looks dovetailed neatly with Ronan's. She said, Timothy is handsome, but he's also beautiful. And Saoirse is beautiful, but she's also handsome. And apparently, she had them swap clothing while they were shooting in order to make that fluidity more evident. Yeah, like the
1: yellow vest with the red polka dots. This -hmm. Lori's vest Mm -hmm. when Joe gives him her ring. And then later, when they have the confrontation and have to address, like, romance, she is now wearing the same yellow vest with the red polka
0: dot. Yeah. And I think because of the way Gerwig develops Amy, uh, spoiler for the end, Amy and Laurie get married, right? The way Florence Pugh and Timothy Chalamet play these characters, it feels way more understandable, like that pairing in this movie for me, because you see... Everything that Laurie was attracted to in Joe mirrored in Amy, like the strength, the fire, the passion. Mm-hmm. And I found their, their pairing in this film more believable and understandable than I have in other versions of Little Women. Why do you think Amy is into Laurie? Mm. Well, she has been that since she was young, right?
1: So I think a huge part of it is because of Joe. Yeah how she idolizes Joe and the connection that Lori has to Joe. And I think that how similar Joe and Amy is, is very much highlighted in the Gerwig adaptation. Yeah. But also the similarities between Lori and Joe. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: There are two scenes that are cut together early on in the film when Amy and Lori are both in Europe and they're at a ball and Amy just dresses him down in front of everybody. And just reads him, just <laughs> criticizes his behavior and says, you need to get it together. You're a mess. And he does not take the criticism well. Right. And he does not know how to respond to criticism. And this scene is cut with Jo living in New York, having her story read by Professor Baer, mm-hmm. who does not like her writing. Yeah. And tells her so and is the first person to tell her that he doesn't like what she's written and she does not respond well at all to that criticism. Yeah. (laughs) And putting these two scenes like together kind of shows that, you know, Joe and Lori are quite similar and that when they are together, they build each other up. Yeah. It's very positive and they aren't critical and they kind of lived in their own bubble. Mm -hmm. But what they really need now that they're becoming adults is to be able to take constructive criticism and grow. Yes. And that they're not gonna be able to do that with each other. Exactly. Mm,
2: yeah, yeah, I see that. Love That's that. So good. That's. I didn't notice that. I man, <laughs> movies, right?
0: <Yeah>. So good.
1: <laughs> After noticing the 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 ballroom scene and then the the literary feedback scene and how those dovetailed together so well to kind of show what these characters really needed to do to grow up. I started noticing how a lot of the scenes that are cut together throughout the movie are really showing you, trying to show you a particular area of growth for these characters. And another one that comes up is for the other two sisters, and that's Beth and Meg. And it's when Meg goes into the city and dresses up and goes to the dance with all of these other girls and is performing and lets everyone call her Daisy and dress her up. She's just performing for this whole crowd and being someone that she isn't. Lori calls her out for it and is pretty rude. Like, let let a girl have her day. I always dislike that part of it. But that scene in the 2019 adaptation is paired with a scene of Beth going over to the Lawrence house and playing the piano. And she's actually performing. She's playing a song, but she thinks that she's just playing for herself and that there's no audience. And we see Mr. Lawrence, Lori's grandfather, walk down the stairs and listen to her and weep, remembering his own. It's my favorite moment of the movie. I'm like the, the girl that he's lost and that Beth reminds him so much of. And I love these two scenes paired together because it just shows how you know they're both trying to find you know what brings them joy, what's going to make them happy. And they're both performing in their own ways. Beth and Meg, like they're not the Joe and Amy. They're not the loud characters. They're not like drawing the attention and pairing them together in this way and making it about performance and making it about attention, I thought was so beautiful and just so different from any other adaptation that goes straight from the book in a linear way. What I love about Greta's script is how, you know, it it is totally different from everyone that came before and that you have these particularly poignant connections that she's making that really build out
0: the characters of the sisters. So we also have Meryl Streep, who is fine. You know, she's she's being campy. I
2: was tickled by her in this role. (laughs) Again, I felt like a character that is usually just a cranky old woman, mm-hmm. fuller and more complex yeah. in this version than she usually is. Think about her role as a wealthy woman who is unmarried. She is the father's sister. The father has no money. She has all of this money. Like, What is this? How, how did this come to be, right? What is her story? And I think that you see her advising Joe Like admonishing Joe for her behavior, and then you see her talking to Amy, and she's Mm -hmm. the one who tells Amy, "You're your family's only hope. You have to marry well." And when Amy's a child, and Amy doesn't fully get it, she's like, "Okay," and then goes back and and paints. But and then what does she do at the end when she dies? She doesn't leave her wealth mm-hmm. to Amy, who was her companion, she leaves it to Joe. The one that she criticized her whole life and you know was like, you need to do this and this and this in order to be successful as a woman. Um, I think maybe Aunt March was a lot mm-hmm. like Joe when she was young. Mm-hmm. Sorry, can we talk about Professor Bear real fast? Greta Gerwig was talking about her choice to cast Louis Garel in that role basically, because he's so mm-hmm. handsome, he's yeah. a heartthrob, right? Yes. And she was like, you know, in the book, Professor Bears is described as having not one handsome teacher. <laughs> and she was like, well, it's a movie, you can't cast someone that looks like that. You know, I feel like I can take that liberty because for decades, men have put mm-hmm. glasses on beautiful women and called them awkward. <laughs> and so that's what she did with
1: Louis Guerrero in this role. He's delicious. He's
0: delicious. The scene
1: when they're in the theater and he's just, like, keeps looking back at her and, like, he just can't... He's trying to watch this play, but he can't stop thinking about the fact that she's there and he just wants to look at her is so different than the theater scenes that you get in the other adaptations. In the 1994 version with Gabriel Byrne playing Professor Bear taking Winona Ryder as Joe to the theater. Well, and in
2: that scene... Gabriel Burns, Professor Bear, is showing Winona Ryder's Joe. He's introducing her to opera, which she has never seen before. And I think that this version, where Circe is there on her own accord, they just happen to have similar interests and happen to be both going to see Shakespeare. To me, that's so much more real and romantic. Yeah, and I think that that's such a more adult uh, yeah. connection. Whether they end up together right. or not, in this. 2019 Mm -hmm. version, which we can talk about. I think that having someone who is mature, who has similar interests, who can meet Joe on her level, who can criticize her and treat her like a peer, that's such a better pairing than an older man who's going to teach her to appreciate opera. An older man who's going to take her manuscript to a publisher friend on her behalf. This 2019 relationship, that's the relationship that Joe deserves. I don't mind Gerwig taking liberties with that because knowing why Louisa May Alcott paired Joe with Professor Bear, she did it because her publisher wanted her to marry Joe off at the end. And she described him as like a funny little match (laughs) that it wasn't, you know, she sort of did it begrudgingly. I, I love the idea that Gerwig took a lot of liberty with that to make it something that seems... Right, yeah, for that really. character.
0: I also I don't think the modern audiences are going to watch a movie where someone like Sarah Sharonin turns down Timothy Chalamet for an ugly older man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Then, like, I don't want to I don't want to see that. But like yeah. Louis Garrel, I buy it.
1: <laughs> You're convincing me because originally I do not like Louis Garrel for this role. <gasps> I don't like having... Gasp. And I know. I have now been convinced. You guys have convinced me. I would have had a German guy
0: or someone a little bit older. I don't know. It didn't feel right to me. What German actor would you have play him? Would you have, like, Christoph Waltz play him? <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Brühl would actually be kind of good. I
1: mean, Daniel Brühl? Yeah, I was thinking Daniel Brühl. Why not? I mean, he has his own charm, but he's not beautiful like Timothy Chalamet, but he still has his own charm and you understand why she would pick him. I, I understand what you guys are saying and I also like the updates in this one. I don't need him to be like that much closer in age to Joe. I like that Professor Bear is a lot older. I mean, I read this book around the same time as I read Jane Eyre. And so I like the idea of like a Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester and a Joe and a Professor Bear. These were always like literary relationships that were presented as like okay you have these young women and they have these rich inner worlds and they're ambitious and they're not going to be like happy being with a guy their own age. They want someone to learn from and grow from throughout their lives and to like be with a like professor is so cool because it's like Okay, I'm going to open up a school and then my husband's a professor. So like he's going to teach half the classes and like I'm going to do the rest and like I'm going to teach classes.
0: But I think what Gerwig does here is that she makes a point that it doesn't have to be an age gap for it to be about meeting at the same maturity. Right. Which I love. You know, Lori, as good of a friend as they are, is not her maturity level yet. And maybe never will be, right? That's And you know, that's why he can have a relationship with Amy. But Professor Bear in this, Louis Garrel, he's older still. He's not her age, right? Exactly. He's still older than her, but is at her maturity level, if not a little more mature, which pushes her. Yeah, exactly. She needs a challenge, right? But there's not an uncomfortable gap in age or maturity, just enough that they push each other. I think that that is a good update to this story for the modern era. Like, it captures the point of the relationship. I
1: mean, especially now that I'm an adult, I read those stories very differently and those relationships very differently. But as a kid, it made perfect sense to me. Because when you're a kid, as a girl, you're just so developmentally, like, advanced (laughs) from all the boys around you who just are knuckleheads eating their boogers. (laughs) And you're reading Jane Eyre and Little Women and you don't like, you can't have a conversation with these guys. And so, you totally understand why Joe is going to go and be with the professor. <laughs> like-
0: Annie's saying you, but she really means I. <laughs> 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 so, what do we think about the fact that most of the people we've discussed thus far have not been American, most of the actors? Because this is, you know, a, I mean, some would say a quintessentially, fundamentally American story. I mean, what do we think about that?
1: Originally, didn't, it didn't faze me. I didn't think about it because I thought of these actors as a lot of the American characters they've been playing in the last few years. And it's such a star-studded cast. And they're now so connected to that that I don't necessarily connect them to who the actor is and where they're from. You know, they play these characters well. They're doing a great job and they're excellent. There's been like a ton of discussions, a, a couple documentaries on Netflix, where people are talking about, you know, casting black British actors to play African American roles. And that is such, like, that feels much more complex than having, like, an Irish girl play Joe March.
0: I did think of it watching the movie the first time because Emma Watson's American accent is pretty bad. <laughs> So mm-hmm. there are a couple of times <laughs> there are a couple of times where she has you know a, a short monologue or something and it's just girl you can't you can't do it and even you know like Sarsha has really honed hers but even still it's not perfect all of the time.
1: No one can convincingly say heart, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and if you go
1: back and rewatch this movie, you'll hear it <laughs> because almost all of the sisters use the word heart. And no one can convincingly say it like an American.
0: <laughs> but it's you know, but it's interesting because you compare it to the ninety four adaptation. And I think, I think casting European or British actors just seems higher brown. It makes people take projects more seriously, which I think is unfortunate. But it is a, a bias people have.
2: I can't think of an an American actor. That I would wanted to have cast in place. Even maybe uh, Elle Fanning Mm -hmm. instead of Emma Watson. Elle would have been interesting. But even then, yeah, to me it doesn't bother me that much. And then thinking about this time in American history that they're playing... You know, I I don't know. When I think about that aspect of it, this movie, this version seems very devoid of that Mm -hmm. historical context in terms of American history. The Civil War is less prominent and there's way less, there's almost no, I think there's no discussion of transcendentalism, right? None. But that was brought up and that is central. That was Alcott's experience um, her family and friends were Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. In fact, those two men were pallbearers at Louisa May Alcott's real sister's funeral. You know, it's just that is missing from this 2019
0: version. Yeah, I feel like a part of this casting too, whether intentionally or not, is for the purpose also of universalizing the story. So making it not just an American Tale, uh, a reflection of America, you know, in the 1860s. Um, but it's not fundamentally a universal story, and this is my problem. You know, Little Women is an American story, and it's a story about white women in the 1860s in Massachusetts. And there are certain things that you can pull out that might be relatable to people from other backgrounds, especially about family sister dynamics, right? which is the fundamental reason we chose to talk about this movie today. But, you know, a European person watching this or reading the book isn't going to have the same connection. And I had friends in Poland, for example, who saw the movie and did not get it. (laughs) And so I think that there's an attempt on Gerwig's part in the cast to make it a more universal story, but I don't think that really works here. I don't know. I think in doing that, it's also lost a little bit. It's lost a little something.
1: I, my recommendation later is going to push back on the idea that this does not have, like, an international (laughs) appeal. Mm -hmm. The little women can appeal to other cultures.
0: Well, I look forward to that. (laughs) I can imagine that Black people might also have a different relationship to not only this movie, but this story.
2: I found an article by Caitlin Greenridge. She's an African-American writer and she does a lot of pieces for the New York Times. And she did one about this version of Little Women and sort of the discussion of why are there no Black characters right. in the story or in the movie? And then the other reaction of you don't want to see Gerwig writing Black characters right. into a story that doesn't traditionally have them either. Why are we trying to alter a story that already, already exists rather than telling new stories that are more inclusive goes back to that question um, or the discussion we had about uh, Ocean's 8 and Ghostbusters, the ladies' version. These st- stories that are traditionally all white or all male, how do we update them, make them appeal to a broader audience? It's not necessarily changing the color of the casting or the gender of the casting. Maybe it's that we just need whole new stories to become part of the American classic. And this woman, Caitlin Greenridge, I I love the last two paragraphs of her article where she describes going to the movie theater to watch this very movie with her sisters, where she says, Watching a movie and dissecting it scene by scene afterward with my sisters is one of my keenest pleasures, one I took for granted in childhood, one I recognize as an adult now as rare. I was surprised to find this at the end of the article, and like there is a commonality of experience there. I just loved finding that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that touches on a huge theme of the movie, a theme of what we're doing here in this podcast. Capturing some of that magic that you have from childhood that you share with your sisters and holding on to that as you go forward in life. It's also what makes the scene in the movie between Joe and Meg on the morning of Meg's wedding one of the saddest of the whole movie. Where I remember in the theater... Just started bawling. Jesse made this horrendously loud sobbing sound, and people looked. Jesse, Jesse,
0: Jesse wails. She doesn't cry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it's the scene between Joe and Meg, where Meg is excited and happy to be getting married, and Joe says, "We can run away together. Like I'll sell my stories and I'll take care of us, and we'll have money and we can survive. Like the two of us, let's just go." because Joe can't understand that Meg wants to get married and is happy and looking forward to this. And Joe says, you'll be bored of him in two years, but we'll be interesting forever. Cue Jesse sobbing. (laughs) (laughs) And it is, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, it's the end of childhood. And then for the next few scenes, it's just these moments, consecutive moments of Joe losing, so much of what she loved and appreciated about her childhood and having to grow and change and become a different person as an adult. And it's losing Meg to a husband. It's losing Beth who dies and it's losing Lori. And the idea of who Lori was to her has to change. Mm. It's all of these massive monumental changes. I mean, the loss of Beth is the biggest one and is deeply sad in all of the adaptations. But in this one, they really make Meg's wedding day and that morning really, really sad for Joe.
0: So there's an elephant in the room. <laughs> Uh-oh. Bath. <laughs> there's a dead <laughs> elephant in the room. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I remember seeing this in the theater with, with my sisters and annie's boyfriend all three of them crying (laughs) and like i i mean i was emotional too don't get me wrong i had a tear in my eye but like whoa the reaction was strong it was strong in this group i mean looking back but like looking back to that first reaction to other versions how did we feel about how they handled beth oof uh in this version i have opinions
2: Okay. So, obviously, the 94 version of Little Women made quite an impression on me. (laughs) (laughs) I know that movie, like, the back of my hand. I can quote it uh, while it's on the screen. I mean, to me, that that has supplanted the book in my mind as the story of Little Women in a lot of ways. Um, (laughs) But... So what I really liked about the nineteen ninety-four version was Claire Danes' Beth and how when she mm. is in the process of dying, um, she sort of has an edge to her that we didn't see before and that I did not get in the 2019 version of Beth. Cause she's got this edge of like, or Amy went away to Europe, you went to New York. Meg went and got married. Now I'm the one who gets to go.
1: <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. She gets to go to heaven, everybody.
2: Right. Now now I'm the one that gets to go first. I get to go and have this new experience that no one else gets to have, and I get to have it first. And it feels a little bit bitter about being left behind. And I liked that about Beth. And I think I wanted to see that. Not that I needed her to be rageful, but I liked seeing more than just this being resigned to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's almost like the the Beth in this version preferred to die before having to see anything
1: else happen to anybody else. Agreed. I think that's interesting, right? The, that Beth, the bitterness of Beth is comparing herself to her sisters. And... That's something that all sisters do. You just, you're always comparing yourself to your sisters. And, you know, in this version, Beth doesn't really compare herself to anyone. She's, she doesn't really get built out as much as a character. And like the person who's really comparing herself to anyone in this one is Amy. (laughs) And it's in very silly ways most of the time. Like, well, I have the most beautiful feet of all my sisters. I would not have broken my ankle. (laughs) And... In past versions, and especially Claire Danes in the 1994 version of Beth, that comparative streak of sisters really manifests on her deathbed. (laughs) She's built out as a character more in the 1994 version than I think in the 2019.
2: Mm -hmm. But I I did love how the 2019 version, scenes of her death juxtaposed with scenes of her being ill when they were children with scarlet fever, that those were intercut because it sort of brought that climax, that like feeling of loss. Uh, It enhanced it because both of those things happened at the same time and you were able to compare one, the relief of someone living Mm -hmm. versus the loss. For me, that heightened the emotion. Yeah,
0: same. Yeah, so I mean, let's talk in general about the format of this movie, which is that there are basically two timelines one, you know, following through childhood and then one when they're slightly older. I know I know, a lot of viewers had trouble with that, apparently, and they couldn't follow it. It's quite clear when you realize that the color palettes are different, mm-hmm. right? So the future, I believe, is more mm-hmm. like a blue and the pants is brighter. Mm-hmm. It's more yellow. Um, I loved that. I thought that was really effective. And I think it climaxes with exactly this scene with Beth. Yep and the payoff of that is really monumental it's on the one hand it's just a great example of how film uh, and the visual can really enhance a story right because so much of the the story of little women is about growing up but what that scene does and that juxtaposition does is it just hammers home the grief not only of losing someone but the grief of adulthood right the heaviness of it yeah two storylines timelines i should say c- connect crash into each other in a way that gives you that the grief that comes with growing up like the hope the optimism when you're young young versus when you're an adult the, the realization that you know that doesn't always happen right? this is mm-hmm.
2: I loved the cutting back and forth in time I just thought it was brilliant and maybe it's because I already knew the story I didn't find it to be confusing right the scene after Beth dies and Joe goes up to the attic and she's writing and she and she's writing by candlelight. To me the color palette seemed a little bit richer in those scenes. And I think it's because you know she's sort of reliving her childhood as she's rewriting it. Yeah. It's not the color grading of the film it's happening happening naturally and you can infer it from the candlelight.
1: Yeah. Another thing that's interesting about the two timelines where it could be confusing for other people is that even when Greta wrote the script Mm. in the script, the 1861, the earlier timeline that is printed in red and the 1868 timeline is in black. So even in the script, the way that they delineate Mm. the two timelines is by the color
0: of the font. What's interesting about this film is, is that it's doing this two timeline thing, but simultaneously using the same actors. So it's really hard to tell how old they are at any given point in the story, right? So it's almost like Proustian, you know, it's almost like this idea that one thing kind of triggers your memory and it's all kind of collapsed, right? Yeah. And if you think about this as a story that's being told by Jo later in in her novel, right? Little Women. It is kind of like living all of the memory at once. And I think that climax with Beth's death scene is really effective for that reason. It shows just the collapse of memory and how it all builds you know to create a person or or a life.
2: I mean, I never had any I didn't think Florence Pugh looked that out of place among the children.
1: <laughs> but I do I'll send you a screenshot. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. <laughs>
2: But I do love that maybe they're all the same age all at the same time. I love this movie. (laughs) I love... It's not even that it's the story of Little Women, but I love how it plays with time and that it took something Mm -hmm. old and made it seem so fresh and new and made me see it in a totally different light.
1: I agree.
0: Yes. And I think this is almost a perfect adaptation. This is why movies sometimes are worth revisiting. Books and adaptations of books are worth revisiting. Makes me so much more disappointed in movies like the new Rebecca. And I've been looking forward to this new Rebecca because I love Rebecca. I love the book, Rebecca. I love the movie. I was really looking forward to seeing a, a new, you know, approach to it, especially after Little Women, right? Because I've been skeptical of Little Women the 2019 version, before we went and saw it, right? And then I walked out and I thought, wow, fantastic. Would love to see other favorites, other classics, get this kind of a treatment. Like a very thoughtful new approach. Rebecca failed. It was so not good. (laughs) I don't know if you saw it. Did either of you see it? No, because I heard it such so much. (laughs) (laughs) And it's such a shame because I think Rebecca... Like Little Women has so many themes that are still very relevant, could be updated, right? And it's a rich story. It's also a story that is told from a female perspective written by a woman with some really rich kind of well, and Rebecca like psychosexual components <laughs> that could be really, you know, maybe in in stronger hands than this new version, uh really be interesting to see in mo- like you know modern times but
2: another story with a a young woman with an older guy
0: yeah mm.
2: still creepy to me still don't <laughs> like it <laughs> maxim is no better
0: yeah, yeah.
2: um i think That's that true. the reason this is such a good adaptation is that gerwig didn't just read the st- the one book. Yes. She didn't just read Little Women. She delved into Louisa May Alcott's life, her letters, her diaries, her writing, all of her other books. And a lot of the, some of the more uh, striking lines are from other books or are from Louisa May mm-hmm. Alcott's letters.
0: Annie, as our resident Louisa May Alcott expert, how would you rate her approach? I'm obsessed with it.
1: And I kind of hate Greta because I'm mad that she got to do it and I didn't get to do it. Or that she, I didn't get to help her do it because this is like a dream project. I would also have wanted to do this. Yeah. And so kudos to Greta, but also, damn. Yeah, this would, that would be my dream approach. I would delve into the archives. I would shoot at Orch- Orchard House in Concord. And I would absolutely mm-hmm. use her own words. And repurpose them and move them around in other ways. Because Louisa is amazing. And she's like a brilliant, brilliant (laughs) writer. And so to capture that so beautifully. And I mean, this is such a labor of love. And she clearly is a fangirl like I am. And I appreciate that about Greta Gerwig. I love that Greta involved so much of Louisa May Alcott in this film. Because... When Louise Maylcott wrote this story, it's about her. It's about her sisters, and it's capturing so much of her own life. And that's what's beautiful about what happens as Jo progresses in her own writing career within the novel and eventually decides to start writing about her sisters and writing about her own life. And Professor Barron, I think he had told her, write what you know. And then she doesn't do that until Beth also says, well, can you do that? <laughs> like, like, that's what I want to read. I want to read what you write about us. And then she does as a way of kind of honoring Beth and honoring their childhood. Louisa Mayancott did the same thing uh, after losing her sister and writing this. It's a tribute. It's a beautiful like memorial of their childhood and the loss of it. And I love that Greta Gerwig starts the whole film with a quote from Louisa May Alcott. You know, I've had lots of troubles, so I write jolly tales. Mm.
2: Yeah, because like, her real childhood was not like this. Um, her family moved around a lot. They didn't all always live together, and they were much poorer than the marches in the story. Mm. So her being able to write the story is almost, it's capturing the best of her childhood and maybe also sort of creating a childhood for herself that she didn't get to have.
0: Wish fulfillment. Yeah. Well, so another aspect of this film is um, the music. So Alexander uh, Desplat, who did the score, said that Gerwig told him, I think this is the case, she said that she wanted to be Mozart meets Bowie. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> and would you really see when Joe and Lori meet and dance out on the porch? You, they're dancing like it's twenty nineteen. They're not yeah. dancing like it's
0: eighteen sixty one.
2: Oh yeah, no. I heard her say in an interview that you know these people in eighteen sixty one, when people heard a waltz, they'd be like, "Yes, <laughs> this is my
0: jam." <laughs> reminds me of Bridgerton all of the all these sort of classical versions of pop music there's like the classical Taylor Swift (laughs) (laughs) you know who was the blueprint though Sophia Coppola Marie Antoinette
1: that is the blueprint so
0: thank you Sophia Coppola yes well before that there was
2: oh man what's it called (laughs) <laughs> that Heath Ledger night movie. Remember that? A Night's Tale. A Night's Tale? A Night's Tale, yeah. That was the original. That was before Rian Antoinette. <laughs> well, I was thinking about the differences between this version and the 94 version, mm. which is like ingrained, like burned, seared into my heart and my brain, right? <laughs> just thinking about how the 2019 version could not have been made in 94 or any other period of time. Like the 94 version is very wholesome. It's very traditional adhering to the story. At the time it was described as being feminist because you do have these women making their way in the world. They have their own ambitions, their own desires and and they pursue them and certainly Joe does. But at the end, it's still a very traditional story where Professor Bear yeah. gets Joe's book published for her. You don't see Joe negotiating. She's not a part of those negotiations at all. And the 2019 version has that. It talks much more plainly about the limitations that women faced, the the legal status of women, their inability to own property, to really make their way in the world, and... Um, And it also has this gender fluidity between like uh, of Joe and Lori of those characters that did not see in any previous version. I think it is there in the book, but those are all very modern ideas that are all part of modern feminism, gender roles, equality. All of that is in the 2019 version that
0: wasn't in the 94 version. One of my first thoughts is, of course, Joe's monologue to her mother in the attic where she says, you know, women have hearts and minds and shouldn't be valued just for marriage and for love, but I'm so lonely. And I love that monologue because it just feels so true to the contemporary female experience. I want to be a career woman. I want to focus on all these things. I want to be known for my mind, but also I want love. I don't want to feel lonely and all these things make me feel lonely. I feel alienated. One thing that that Monologue does is really complicate the values that we have. Yeah. I mean, this idea of like having it all, but really that you have to put on a face to be seen as strong.
1: Mm. And that that's kind of her moment of weakness, confiding that
0: in Marmy. Yes. But why can't you, you know, be a strong, intelligent woman like Joe is, but still like want that kind of a connection with people in a very base but coded feminine way? I think that when Marmy interrogates
2: Joe about that loneliness, you know, Joe has that feeling of like I'm lonely. Well, why don't I see if Lori will take me right. back? Like that's such a desperate, sad feeling. And I think yes. I want to be partnered so I will I will settle for this or I will yes. give this this other thing up so that I can have this mediocre thing to fill this this need. There are just mm-hmm. all of these needs that we all constantly have. There's no yeah. easy answer about how to fulfill all of them.
0: When Marmy says, but do you love him, right? When yeah. Joe is saying, do you think he'll take me back? Right. <laughs> and then Marmy says, well, do you love him? And Joe says, I care more to be loved. Yeah. I want to be loved. It's such a selfish, selfish thing. And it's so real. And I think that that's one of the things about this adaptation of Little Women is that it's these characters... Are more well-rounded. So Joe becomes a little bit more unlikable. Amy becomes a little more likable. Yeah. They feel more inhabited. And I think this is also true of Lori. That scene on the hillside, right? When he's confessing his feelings. And she says, no, you'll find someone else who can be the keeper of your house and be your wife. But we won't be happy together. We'll drive each other crazy. And then she says, well, I'm not interested in being married. Probably ever. And then he says... You will care for somebody and you'll love him tremendously and live and die for him and you will and i'll watch and i think you can interpret that as like the nice guy thing like oh like i did everything for you why don't you love me but i think what it really is is it it reflects that later scene with joe in the attic but it's it's a moment of real vulnerability in these characters
1: Yeah, I think that the way Timothy Chalamet handles that scene is so much more filled with his own vulnerability and anguish. Yes. Whereas in the 1994 version, Christian Bale is pretty angry and he says the same things to Joe and it's like accusing her. Yes. He's mad that she won't pick him. Totally. Whereas Timothy Chalamet is just destroyed and like in despair,
0: resigned. Like he knows. He's saying it not as an accusation, but as. Reality. Like, this is how my life will be now. I guess it goes back to like Gerwig trying to blend some of these lines of traditional gender roles between these two characters. And he has that moment of that vulnerability. And it's almost like a, I hate to say, but like almost like a selflessness because I, I hate to say that because he's not entitled to anything from her. But he, you know, he says that. And then later when Joe says, I want, I care more to be loved, that's a moment of selfishness, but they both ring very true. It's almost that reason they can't be together and they don't work.
2: You know, we were talking about how Laurie and Joe mirror each other and are very similar. I think he also wants yeah. to be loved. And I think yes. it's more clear in the 94 yes. version that he kind of dips his toe into each sister of like, what would, <laughs> it, what would it be like to to be with each one of them? So I don't remember if it's in the 2019, but I definitely remember the 94 version when Christian Bale <laughs> says to Samantha Mathis, and he's like, just like you have always known that you would not marry a pauper. I have always known that I would be part
1: of the March family. It's like Owen Wilson in the Royal Tenenbaums. It's like, I've always just wanted mm-hmm. to be a Tenenbaum. <laughs> and and yeah. that is Lori. He's like, I've always just wanted to be a March. And like, as soon yeah. as the first yeah. scene in the 2019 movie, like version when he brings joe and meg back from the ball and it's just the hearth the fire is going everyone's looking and doing their own thing it's just so full of life and so warm and he's on the edge of it all yeah and he lives in this like austere home and he's suffered tremendous loss and has this very kind of cold existence and then he sees this and he knows that he wants to be a part of this. This is all he really wants. It's a huge problem for Amy. Right? She doesn't want to be second to Joe. She doesn't want to be second to her sister. And she's like, I want you to love me for me. He can love Amy, but a huge part of what he loves about Amy is her family. And that's a huge part of who she is.
0: Yeah, but you know, I think Timothy Chalamet sells it pretty well. I think he's, he's a likable Lori. Yeah, I agree.
1: He's a likable Laurie. And the the chemistry between him and Amy actually makes sense. The chemistry in this movie, they build it out because they give us more scenes of them together in Europe, how their relationship grows and progresses.
2: Gerwig said that she wanted to introduce Professor Bear at the beginning, and she wanted to introduce Laurie, have the audience see him first with Amy. Interesting. Because instead of just springing all of this in the last, like, 20 minutes of the movie... Uh, To show it at the beginning makes it all seem inevitable.
0: Yeah, I think this version accomplishes that. You know, when when they show up together at the end, in this version for me at least, it's much much less of a shock. Like, I understand how Amy and Lori happen, mostly because of that speech that Amy gives. But I think, you know, fundamentally that is why Joe and Lori don't work and why Bear makes sense or her being, you know, on her own because... She loves her family, but so much of her dynamic with them is feeling like she's set apart from them and going off and having her own life outside of them. Lori, first of all, you're right. Like he wants to marry into the family. He wants to be a part of the family. That's more important to him than being with Joe, I think. And he wouldn't be happy with Joe because they wouldn't be in that family dynamic because she has to go off and do her writing and and teaching. And that's why Bear makes more sense in a way, whether they're romantically entangled or not as a relationship, because he is also an incredibly independent person who is living his own journey. There's a level of maturity and independence that Bear exhibits that is alluring to Joe, but also like a challenging in a good way. Her family and Lori, as much as she loves them, they don't challenge her in that way. That's why she has to go off to the city, write, and teach. And that doesn't mean she doesn't love her family, That brings us to the ending of the film. I love this ending. I did not care for it. So I'd be interested to hear
2: why you liked it. So in the end, Professor Bear shows up at Orchard House. Everyone's there. They have a meal. It harkens back to the beginning of the movie when it's just the girls and their mother and Hannah having dinner around the table. And now it's... it's The girls and their men. And then he leaves and then it sort of almost takes on this totally different tone of almost like a rom-com. And the sisters get to have this moment together where they chase after him and they're giggling and they're laughing. The sweeping music in the rain and classic, Joe runs up to him And it's that scene that's in every adaptation that I love so much where they're under the umbrella in the rain. He says, but my hands are empty. (sighs) She puts her hand in his hand and says, they're not empty now. That's such a beautiful romantic Mm. moment. But then it's also intercut with Jo negotiating with her publisher (laughs) and negotiating for how much she will sell her story to and her publisher saying, You know, you can't end the story like this. It needs, she needs to be. She's either married or dead by the end. Right. And then Joe pitches this ending, and then the publisher's like, Yes, I- I'm emotional. I love it. We'll call it Under the Umbrella. And that's the name of the chapter in the book. Like, I, it's so <laughs> meta and it's so, um, it's a meeting of
1: Louisa May Alcott and Joe March. But then in the movie, the final shot is of Joe finally holding her novel, the physical, like published novel, with her mm-hmm. hands. And it focuses yeah. on her hands. And her hands yeah. aren't empty. They're full of this book that she wrote. Well, and that scene when the
2: book is being made is intercut with the very super saturated colored scene of Joe walking through Plumfield, which she has turned into a co-educational integrated school for children where all of her family members are teachers.
1: It's the fantasy, it's the dream.
2: Okay, so even in the script uh, for describing those scenes, the writing is in red and it says fiction, but then it has a question mark in parentheses afterwards.
0: But this is why I don't care for the ending it only works on a, almost on a metatextual level. Like you have to be familiar with the real story. You can be told it and then enjoy it, but I think on its own, it's really hard to get to understand that. And I almost feel like there's another scene missing at the end that would give just a little bit more context for people who might be unfamiliar with the real story. So on a personal level, I, I like the ending. But I think for what the film maybe was trying to accomplish, I think it's a little unsuccessful. The ending is where it's like a wink and a nod to fans, but it's, it's almost too metatextual to be enjoyed on, a de- like on, a, on the real level by the broader audience.
1: And just like the labor that goes into writing that book, they really drive that home. In the end. Yeah. With her yes. writing.
0: That's a beautiful sequence. And yeah.
1: having to shake out her hand and then use her other hand because she taught herself to be ambidextrous so that she could keep writing and not have to break her flow. Love that. And then like the actual publishing, you know, every part of it is just like all of the, la- like all of the labor that has to go into yes. making this book you really feel. And she draws it out and spells it out and shows every little part of it. And that's beautiful. And it's so different from the opening scene with the publisher who picks up her papers and just, like, Mm -hmm. scratches through an entire page.
2: Well, I think from what I've read about Greta Gerwig, to her, she wanted to have these heightened feelings of, like, Joe giving birth to a book and bringing her book to life. And that that should be able to have the same, like, surge of emotion and Climactic feel as a kiss in the rain under the umbrella. And I think it did. I think maybe it did need to have that be intercut with that fantasy um, in order to be made clear as like, this is the end. Like, this is the dream fulfilled. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Agreed. Oh, guys. So, do you know who the actor is who plays the publisher? Do you know that actor? Yeah, Chris Cooper. Tracy Letts. No, who plays the publisher for you? Tracy Letts. Tracy Letts. Oh, <laughs> Tracy Letts. Do you guys know who he's married to? All right, who's he married to? He's married to Carrie Coon from The Leftovers, <laughs> who's going to be in Ghostbusters Afterlife. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, You guys are rude, but as they say in this movie, life is too short to be angry at one's sisters,
0: so. <laughs> How dare you. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to have some good recommendations for our listeners. Um. Annie, do you want to go first? I'm happy to go first. I'm going to recommend
1: something that I have talked about on the podcast before. I think I know what it is. (laughs) And that I have recommended to so many people because it just took over my life last year. I do know And I'm going to recommend Elena Ferrante's (laughs) (laughs) Neapolitan novels. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So, as we heard earlier, when I – find an author that I am obsessed with, I then just go and read everything that they've written. And as I did with Louisa May Alcott as a kid, last year I did this with Elena Ferrante. And the first novel in the series is called My Brilliant Friend. So start there. And My Brilliant Friend is the story of two girls growing up in Naples in 1950s. And part of them growing up it's an incredibly underfunded and like impoverished life and whether or not they're even going to stay on to middle school is not a given and in elementary school they come across some extra money that they don't have to tell anyone about and they use that money to buy a copy of Little Women and the two girls read it together And they read every single word and then they decide that they want to be like Joe March and they are going to write their own novel because girls could get paid for writing. And how incredible is that? It's just magical, like, reading these two characters, these, like, Italian girls set in the 1950s and how they also just connect so deeply to this story. And clearly the author, it's very, like, autobiographical Even though she's a mystery, if you read all of her books, there are many things that stay very similar across her characters. And so it's really beautiful to read this and my brilliant friend when they, the two little girls are reading Little Women and it inspires them to become writers. Uh, Anyway, read that book. It's so good. It's also been adapted into an HBO TV series if you would rather just watch the TV show, but please read the book. It's so good.
0: I want to second Annie's recommendation. She gave the box set to me for Christmas. I have not finished all four yet. I'm reading the second one now. Um, It is superb. (laughs) It is just stunning. And I haven't seen the show, but I can say, I can second Annie in saying that the prose itself is just beautiful. So beautifully translated. Yeah. Definitely check it out if you like Little Women. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes, and the whole novel series follows the girls as they grow up and the loss of childhood and the onset of adulthood and like Little Women does it just masterfully and uh, it's it's more explicitly political and sexual and and it's it's like an adult version and Italian and a period piece but it's it's excellent. It's so good. Go read it.
0: <laughs> All right, Jesse, do you have any recommendations for listeners? Yes, I have two recommendations.
2: They are both TV shows. Great. (laughs) Um, So the first one is Dickinson, and it's set about like 15 to 20 years before Little Women is set. Um, But it's in the same community uh, in Massachusetts, outside of Boston, you know, Little Women set in Concord. Dickinson is set in Amherst but it's a it's a modernization of the story of Emily Dickinson it is a new fresh take on it the dialogue is modern dialogue the soundtrack is modern music and it really expands the universe of what we know about Emily Dickinson and reimagines um the community that she was living in but it has a lot like feminist views, abolitionist views, it has African-American characters, it has gay and lesbian characters, and it just plays around with a lot of things in a new, fun, modern way. And then the second sh- series is Am with an E, which is an adaptation um, for Canadian television. It's on Netflix. Um, it's an adaptation of Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables series, which are books that I loved as a kid. But it reimagines the stories and it expands the universe of the books to include gay and lesbian characters. And it also deals with race, what Black people's lives were like in Canada, as well as First Nations peoples. So it's really cool and compelling adaptation of and reimagining of that classic childhood book. So I encourage everybody to take those childhood books that they loved and revisit them and think about them in new ways. That's my recommendation.
0: For my recommendation, I suggest the novel Sula by Toni Morrison. It's very short, it's about 200 pages. It's her second novel, it was published in 1973. Like uh, the Neapolitan novels recommended by Annie, it deals with two female friends, one named Nell and one named Sula, one of whom ends up having a more like, stable life, gets married, and has a family. Um, that's Nell. And then Sula lives an unconventional life, and it's about their relationship and race uh and how black women are treated in society and it's just it's very complicated dynamic um between these two women but it's beautiful it's heartbreaking um so just keep that in mind It's it has it's very sad but it's beautiful and short so if you're interested in complex female relationships definitely check out sula it is shorter than the neapolitan novels so that's also that's also nice <laughs> Um, And also just, you know, Toni Morrison in general, but specifically for people who liked Little Women, check out Sula. Thanks for listening
1: to our episode about Little Women and thank you to Frankie for picking this movie. You're welcome. great, great discussion, (laughs) had so much fun. Hope everyone enjoyed (laughs) listening. If you enjoyed, feel free to leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts. Check out our website for more information We have tons of show notes for you on all of our episodes over on our website at www.cinemasilopod.com.
0: Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Cinemasilopod. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the 1987 film Babette's Feast. See you next time in the Silo.
1: Why did I say www dot? (laughs) I was like Annie, what is this like? I
0: was like, why is this like PBS in the nineties? Why are you telling them to go to www dot?
2: Annie, you forgot the (laughs) (laughs) HTTPS colon backslash backslash. (laughs) I don't know if people will be able to get there without that.
0: (laughs)
1: Annie, life is too short to be angry at one sister. It's also
0: too short to say www dot before every URL.